Listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on the afternoon of Friday, October 21st, 2022. And my in-studio guest today is Halin Han, Senior Researcher at the Korea Institute for Economic Policy, or KIEP, or KEEP, if you want to pronounce it that way. We'll be talking about economic transition in North Korea by comparing it to the case of four Southeast Asian states. But before we get started, please... Everybody, leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, Spotify, Audible, the other ones, uh, Google, for example. And don't forget to share this episode with colleagues and friends and even people you don't know and people you don't like. Uh, On Spotify, you can leave a rating but no reviews, but please do that anyway. And if you're listening on YouTube, you can click like and subscribe. Secondly, don't forget to check out nknews.org where you can find all of the in-depth stories that my colleagues write every day. Uh, Consider buying a subscription for a year, and it's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Thirdly, follow us on Twitter at nknews.org. It's one word. Okay, so to introduce my guest today, Harlin Han obtained her Master's of Science in Economics from the London School of Economics and Political Science and is now a senior researcher at the Korea Institute for Economic, International Economic Policy. Wait, there's two eyes in there. What's correct, Harlin? Is it international economic policy or just economic policy? It's international economic policy. Okay, so it's actually two eyes. Exactly. Korea Institute for International Economic Policy, K-I-I-E-P. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she's in the Economic and Security Strategy Department, but was previously in the Department for New Northern Policies, where she was a member of the International Cooperation for Korean Unification Team. Welcome on the show, Halin. Hi, Jekko. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming, and thank you for making the arduous march all the way (laughs) from Sejong City, where Kiep is based, all the way here to Seoul. So that was uh, uh, actually further from Sejong to Seoul than from Pyongyang to Seoul, isn't it? (sighs) I guess so, yeah. It could be. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about what KIEP is and what it does. So KIEP, like it is stated, like the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy, is a government-funded uh, think tank based in Sejong. It is devoted to building some policy issues uh, regarding the international economic policies. So we do kind of a research into the external relations of Korea and what kind of economic gains and or benefits that we can gain from building bilateral or multilateral relationship with other countries. Okay, you were previously, as I said in the introduction, in the International Cooperation for Korean Unification Team. Tell us what that does or did and whether it still exists. Oh yeah, uh, let me clarify it. Uh, I'm still in the International Cooperation for Korean Unification Team. The team has never uh, gone missing. Okay, <laughs> It's there. It's just the, de- the, the department that it belongs to has changed. Ah, from new northern policies to the economic, economic security, security strategy. Exactly. Okay. So right. the team has been there since uh, 2014 when there was a like, you know, um, a statement that, you know, unification can bring a lot of fortune to South Korea. Oh, that was under President, uh, then President Park Geun-hye. Exactly, exactly. So the, this team was established at that time. And since then, we've been researching the um, external relations and the economic situations of the North and what kind of um, the policies that South Korea has to build against uh, North Korea. Not necessarily what? Against North Korea or in relation to North Korea? Uh, in relation to no- North Korea, yes. Okay, so it's not necessarily opposed to... It's not opposed to, yeah, that was a poor choice of my... my um, Word. Okay. Okay. And, and your team has done a lot of different interesting research projects on many different areas that look at North Korea. So can you give us just a, a, a taste of some of the things that you've looked at? 
So it basically started with something um, that you know everybody can have access to, like for for instance, like the trade with China, what kind of um, um, external relations that North Korea has had since uh, its establishment. So like Russia, China, and what kind of relationship did it have, like with Japan or the United States so far. And then it kind of developed into more sophisticated ones. Like what we're doing at the moment is not just looking into the trade uh, with the North Korea, but also we're looking into like you know health issues regarding mm. the COVID uh, and some sort of a strategies to tackle uh, to grapple with the climate change issues. Climate change, okay. Yeah, yeah climate change issues and. Wow. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, I- external debt or North Korea's debt you've done. Exactly. For- that's what I d- I've done. I always forget <laughs> that I've done it. <laughs> but that's a big topic, right? Uh, it is a big topic. Because that is something that, um, I mean, if you're a, an international investor and you're thinking about investing in a place, mm-hmm. how a country deals with and repays or doesn't repay its debt mm-hmm. could be something that could affect your investment choices. Absolutely. Yeah. That would affect the, the foreign investment as well, yeah. Okay, and so how are the, the, the outcome of the research products supposed to be used? Are they purely theoretical or do they provide practical advice to policy planners and so on? It's definitely not uh, purely theoretical. It's it's kind of based on a thin like layer of the information that we can have access to. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not really theoretical. It's 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 mostly uh, done by the request, sometimes by the request of the government, or sometimes we just you know suggest that there are some things that we have found or discovered right. from North Koreans' uh, situation that you might use it uh, as very useful for your building when you build the uh, policy regarding North Korea. Now, researching anything related to the North Korean economy or anything related to North Korea is very difficult because it's a it's an opaque system. It's not a lot of transparency notoriously or famously, I should say, the Bank of Korea every year provides some statistics on how the North Korean economy has grown or shrunk or mm-hmm. flatlined. Uh, and people always wonder, where do they get their, their figures from? How do they do? So can you tell us a little bit about the difficulty of researching North Korea and, and how you do it? Yeah, so uh, you pointed it right. Um, so it's all about the estimation. Is how much accurately we can get to the est- the the full um, like scale estimation. So, like you said, the Bank of Korea estimates the um, growth rate mm-hmm. of North Korea every year based upon the methodologies that South Korea uses. But the thing is, um, what North Korea discloses in term in regards to their growth is whether they kind of uh, increase their uh, like you know, budget by how much percent compared to the previous year, and not the exact amount of the the number. Mm. So it's all about the guesses. So all we can get is the rate or growth rate, and it's also estimated based upon the like you know methodologies of the South Korea, as like you said, and and like you pointed out, the North Korea has a very different economic system than South Korea. So like guess game. Okay. That leads me to a, a very important question. How would you describe the current the, the North Korean economic system? What kind of system is running in North Korea? Is it purely state capitalism? Is it socialism? What really is it? I can't really, you know, pick a word to describe North Korea's system. Like, you know, South Korea, well, it's not, it's a capitalist country, but sometimes like we have some sort of a redistributing system as well, which cannot be explained purely by the, um, the idea of the capitalism. So uh, North Korea, I would say North Korean system. It's a North Korean style. Uh-huh. So is it like anything anywhere else in the world? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Is it a hybrid in a sense? I mean, we know that there are some market activities going on there at the low level, mm-hmm. but then there are state-owned enterprises. So is it some kind of a hybrid system exactly. involving elements of state capitalism and 
kind of almost in in the local levels in the marketplace is kind of a laissez-faire capitalism. Mm-hmm. So so there have been like you know a market activities witnessed in, in some of the like major cities in North Korea. So we say oh yeah there is a like a like small factor of the capitalism within North Korea, but the authorities in North Korea never acknowledge it. Mm. Officially, so we can't actually officially say that North Korea has a hybrid um, system of the capitalism and state capitalism. They are like you know adopting the state capitalism for sure, but as far as like you know market capitalism is concerned, I'm pretty you know not really inclined to say that they have a hybrid system. It's it's not really official. Okay, so I want to talk to you about one of your recent studies about implications of the transitional outcomes of so- certain Southeast Asian countries, which you, in your paper, call CLMV, uh, tra- implications for North Korea. First of all, who or what are C- CLMV? So it's an acronym. Um, I don't know whether other people use it or not, but it's, it represents us Cambodia, Laos PDR, uh, Myanmar, and Vietnam. Okay, so four uh, Southeast Asian economies who have been going through some kind of transition in recent decades. Now, this is a, it's a big report, isn't it? 200 pages or so? Yeah, I lo- uh, after I told you that it was a 200 page long, I looked into it again and mm-hmm. it was like 160. Sorry about that. Okay, and but it's still quite big. <laughs> it is, it's it not, is. not something you can read over breakfast. <laughs> uh, so how would you summarize it briefly? So what we did was We wanted to see what kind of a transition path the North Korea can take under the premise that, you know, if the North Korea kind of opens its economy and tries to adopt the uh, capitalistic factors. Then we uh, kind of uh, looked into the, you know, long and uh, longest and a very reputable uh, report from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Uh, They have been uh, tracking the transition process of the um, former Soviet Union countries, uh, especially the Eastern Europe. Uh, since like 1994 or so, mm. and uh, we we wanted to kind of compare those countries to 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 the transition path that North Korea can take. But then we realized that there was a huge difference in terms of transition that North Korea would go uh, if ha- should they open its economy. Then uh, we found. So you're talking. We're, we're talking specifically about economic transition, not exactly. not political systems no. or social transition, just economic transition. Precisely, okay. precisely. Uh, the political transition is kind of a hard to assess mm-hmm. in qualitative and uh, quantitatively. Okay. So we chose uh, to focus on the economic transition only. And besides, the North Korea specifically stated that they don't want any regime change. They want right. some stability in their regime. So there would be wouldn't be any like you know political change at all. And in the course of the transition path. Okay. So we realized that Eastern European countries are not going to be an epitome of North Korean transition. So we looked into other countries who went through the transition but had adopted some sort of a similarities that North Korea can adopt, which were like, you know, Southeast Asian countries, which were affected by the Chinese state capitalism somehow. And um, their income status was, I mean, they're higher than North Korea, obviously, but, but, quite similar, and they are still develop, least developing countries, and some of them just got out of the um, least developing country status. Mm-hmm. So uh, we thought it would be a good comparison for, for North Korea. Okay, and you mentioned uh, Chinese state capitalism, that they're all somehow influenced by that. Can you tell a little bit more about that? What, what is the influence of Chinese state capitalism on the economies of these four countries? So the transition that we witnessed in the Eastern Europe was pretty quick. It was like a big bang. And it was one time, one shock, one natural like experiment. And it happened all, all of a sudden. All the, all the transition in the economic sectors like privatize, privatization, like macroeconomic stability, foreign direct investment, were moved to the capitalistic um, 
elements. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of state capitalism, China, China did the transition as well in terms in the economic sector. And they started in 1978. And it, it, it was the process was very gradual and slow mm -hmm. compared to those in the Eastern Europe. Um, so the CLMV went through the transition and they had a similar pattern of the transition like China did. And because of the pro geographical proximity to China, they had adopted, I think, we believe, uh, it's not confirmed, but we believe that some of the factors that the, the CLMB had ad adopted uh, look very similar to those that China had gone through in the past. Okay, and in, in, in doing this research with regard to uh, North Korea, is there a, the, the premise there that uh, North Korea is somehow similar to uh, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam, economically speaking? Sorry, come again? So, talking economically, mm -hmm. the, uh, is your paper based on the premise that North Korea is somehow similar to those four countries? Yes, yes. We're doing it under the premise that the, the, ha uh, the North Korea has a similar um, economic preconditions, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Now, those four countries that we mentioned, the China, Laos, uh, Myanmar, and Vietnam, they've all had uh, quite different experiences. So, is it actually possible to make comparisons? Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, it was an arduous job um, to make sure that you know we're all we're making sure that you know all those four countries are you know in a, in, a, in the same line, mm. same start line. And besides, it, this research was conducted uh, during the COVID time at the very beginning of the COVID um, spread, which was 2020. Mm -hmm. But this idea of the research was um, built in 2019. And what we were thinking was like. You know, let's if we can find the um, data, we can go straight to the those four countries and ask those like you know experts and get some data on there because you know it's it's a developing country. Some of the data are not digitized and they're right. not shared uh, in English. They're sometimes in their original language only, and some of the data are accessible to to the national uh, not to their nationals only. But uh, thanks to the um, not thanks to but due to the. Um, the travel restrictions, mm -hmm. uh, we were not able to obtain the data. So we, um, I emailed, I call, made some phone calls to the experts in, within those like four countries and try to gather the data and made sure that we have the same data sources uh, as much as we can. Yeah. Right now, uh, so let's go into that a bit um, without going too technical. How did you measure economic transition in those four countries? What metrics and methodologies did you use? So we couldn't like you know build a like you know whole new measurement. Mm. So we looked into the EBRD's reports. Right, that's the European Bank for Reconstruction Development. Exactly. But you mentioned that the European Bank for Reconstruction Development studied Eastern European countries, mm -hmm. and you're studying Southeast Asian countries. Mm -hmm. So what what model did you take from the EBRD, and what changes did you have to make? So like I said before, um, the EBRD tracked down the transition process of the Eastern European countries since 1994 until recently, until like 2019 or so. Okay. Yeah. So what they did was to make sure that they were uh, measuring the same thing over the, sa over the time period. So they developed their um, something called transition indicators uh -huh. to evaluate the transition process at the same um, level of measurement over the um, observed period. Okay. So we took the idea from that. Um, but the problem is uh, the Eastern European had a plenty of data to, to build the transition indicators, but which it was in the same case with the CLMB countries. Mm. So uh, we try to build the, the structure of the transition indicators from the EBRD's like, you know, uh, past reports and then adopted, uh, adopted some of the things that CLMB didn't have mm -hmm. as, as 
because CLMV are technically different countries from the Eastern European countries. So mm-hmm. They had some traits that the uh, Eastern European had or had not. Um, so we made our own transition indicators all for the CLMV. Yeah. Okay. So in the result of your uh, research, tell us a little bit about how each of those four countries is doing in terms of economic transition. So um, unlike the EBRD, which did a very re- the transition did track the transition process for a very long time uh, due to the lack of the data. Uh, we only did like the pe- observed period from 1990 until 2015. So it's not really recent, 2015. Okay. It was uh, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And when we uh, we were conducting this research, it was 2020. So we wanted to gain the 2020 data as well, but it was up until like 2021 that we could uh, we were able to get the 2020 data. So the transition that we evaluated of those four countries were up, up until 2015. Okay. And while they were making progresses, uh, the speed of the of the transition progress was completely different. Obviously, mm. the the fastest one that we observed was from Vietnam. Yeah, it grew uh-huh. really. Uh, it made a transition really quick, and a lot of the sectors, like in the private, both in public, uh, not not public, but private sectors and like f- economic fundamentals, they did a lot of progress in the transition. And on the other hand, Myanmar showed the um, least um, progress in terms of transition. They had a, a lot of um, internal domestic um, issues, and they also had uh, some sanctions with the US, from the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, which kind of hampered the foreign direct investment and so on. Yeah, so it, there is a difference in those countries. Okay, so just to, to help redefine for our listeners, so when you're talking about transition, and so uh, Vietnam made the, the fastest transition, mm-hmm. and Myanmar made the slowest, you're talking about changing from a, uh, a, a state-driven economy to uh, a, 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 an economy that allows for private enterprise and, uh, and free market capitalism. Exactly. So uh, if I just you know, give more details about it. Um, yeah. So uh, the transition I mentioned here is a very broad term, mm-hmm. and it's defined uh, very differently from many institutions. What right. yeah, IMF sees as transition and what China sees as a transition are completely different. Not completely, but very different. Mm-hmm. So what we did was uh, we categorized the transition, economic transition yep. into three groups. So okay. one is the economic fundamentals, like macroeconomic stability, like exchange rates. Ah. Uh-huh. And uh, the number two is the public sector. And the other, the last one is the private sector. So we kind of attract, uh, we measure the, um, those kind of a progress in those three sectors and compared it across those countries. We realized that, you know, in terms of economic transitions and the economic fundamentals, they all showed the fastest progress, uh, fastest growth or, you know, biggest progress in terms of economic transition. And the second one we um, commonly observed was that the private sector was open. So the private capital was able to be invested into their companies and private capital was uh, able to be used for for funding the companies and so on. The least uh, developed part in terms of economic transition was the public sector. Mm. They never, uh, not never, but I'm getting a little strong, but uh, they did not uh, make any progress in terms of allowing the, the private capital to enter the public sector. So the state still owned the, uh, the the power supply, right. yeah, or or other infrastructure sectors, mm-hmm. railways, and so on. So that's the least uh, the the least developed part in terms of economic transition. Yeah. So am I correct in understanding that uh, normally uh, when you're talking about transition, you would expect 
uh, there to be more privatization there exactly. in, in the public sector. Exactly. So, like, uh, for instance, like in some of the European countries witnessed that, you know, railways mm -hmm. uh, companies that were owned by the state previously turned into a private equity firm after doing the the process called privatization. Right. And it was not witnessed in the, uh, in the uh, CLMB countries. And actually, that's kind of um, similar in terms in South Korea as well. I mean, the... I mean, well, that's right. Corail is still state-owned, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. And and at least some of the subways are uh, owned yeah. by the, the city. It's partially privatized. Mm -hmm. uh, it's but not completely privatized. So you can. I mean, the public sector is kind of hard to open to the private sector because it's all about you know competition when it comes to private sector. But right. it's a supply that is required for every um, citizen to to utilize. So it's kind of hard for the state to make you know open it. So does that mean that South Korea also, in terms of economic transition, is less developed in the public sector? I haven't done the um, measurement mm -hmm. <laughs> or the maybe okay. an assessment over economic transition of South Korea, but yeah, well, in terms of the in in those like energy sectors or yeah. infrastructure, I think so, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so you gave a, a score or a rating to these four economies mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their economic transition. I, is that score, that index that you give there, is that the uh, the Transition indicator? Yes. Um, so EBR to use the five scale or measurement. So there is like a one, two, three, four, and four plus. Okay. But it's kind of confusing, four and four plus. So, we so one is, is least transition least and transition. four plus is most transition. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But we switched the four plus to five mm -hmm. to make sure that it's kind of a... To know, make, yeah. Yeah. To make it clear. Yeah. Okay. So, Mm-hmm. And, and so um, do you know off the top of your head, because I know you don't have your report open here, but do you know off the top of your head approximately what the scores of those four economies were? So uh, it depends. Uh, so we kind of categorize the transition not just into three sectors, like I said before, ah. but also within those economic fundamentals and no, 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 not within the economic fundamentals. So uh, like I said uh, at the very beginning of the podcast, um, we were... You know, CLMB was kind of influenced by the state capitalism of China, right? Yeah. But the EBRD followed the idea of the something called Washington Consensus. Okay, what is that? Washington Consensus is something, some idea that the IMF adopted uh, during the 1980s uh, for the South American countries to make uh, economic, I mean, drastic economic like transition. Yeah. And uh, what they did was like, you know, they uh, listed some uh, 10 like goals that, you know, those uh, South American countries have to you know, reach or, you know, attain. And I classified those transition indicators according to those Washington consensus. Okay. And based on that, we did also the evaluation uh, with the transition indicators. And it showed result that, you know, all of the CLMB countries uh, were focusing on the foreign uh, uh, trade, trade and foreign direct investment throughout the transition process. When it comes to like, you know, distribution of the public resources or, or uh, labor productivity, it was the least developed uh, in terms of making the transition progress. I, I cannot really tell whether how how they made uh, in the transition overall. Mm -hmm. I can just you know tell you how they did uh, they performed in each sector. Uh, in each sector. Yeah. Okay. Um, have any of them gone backwards in terms of transition? That's an interesting question. Um, so, like I said before, it was the the research observes 
only until like 2015, right? right? But Myanmar has had a coup since then. Exactly. Yeah. And the U.S. sanctions are back and European sanctions are back as well. Right. So I think if we do the, um, the evaluation for the 2020, I guess that, you know, the progress would be kind of a retarded. Okay. Now, what, what signs tell you that North Korea's economic transition in the future is more likely to be similar to these four Southeast Asian transition economies than, uh, than Eastern Europe? So that's a difficult question to answer because um, in this report, it, the title says implications for the North, mm. but we did not we did not conduct any um, assessment for the North Korean part in this report. Right. Yeah. So what we uh, what the le- the lessons that we took from these um, four countries is that what happens if they take a similar path? So yeah, and most of the time that they focus on the economic transition. And they they put their weight in inducing the foreign direct investment and mm-hmm. the trade. In order to do so, um, the first and foremost thing is to restore the relationship with the U.S. Ah, okay. So that that is like a, a prerequisite for um, any real substantial economic transition. Exactly. Restore relationship with the U.S. So we know that Vietnam uh, restored economic relations, well, diplomatic relations with the U.S. With it before 20 years had expired after the war finished, right? Exactly. So in the early 1990s. Right. Um, what about with Laos and, uh, and Cambodia and Burma, uh, Myanmar? So Cambodia, I think, uh, Cambodia did restore the uh, relationship with the U.S. later on, but Cambodia had another uh, difficult agenda. Um, it went through a war with Vietnam. It did, yeah. And then uh, it had some sort of a domestic turmoil all mm-hmm. the time. That kind of uh, uh, hampered the, ins- uh, the stability of the economy, right. which kind of retarded their uh, transition progress compared to the others. Laos, I think they uh, regained their normal trade relations with the U.S., mm. uh, Soon after, like, 1994 or so. Okay. And in case of Myanmar, that's that's tricky. The mm. sanctions were always there, and they had the least pro- they made the least progress in terms of a foreign direct investment and the trade because they didn't restore the relationship with the U.S. That means it's kind of hard for the foreign uh, capital to invest in Myanmar. Uh-huh. Okay. And so, so that is the, the number one lesson that you've drawn for, for North Korea is... Listen, if you want to have an economic transition, you're going to have to restore relations. Well, restore. You're going to have to forge some relations with yes. the U.S. Yes. Okay. What other lessons can be drawn from the experiences of the CLMV countries? The lessons that we learned from those four countries was that they focused too much on the trade and the foreign direct investment that they kind of overlooked the importance of like you know, building the uh, suitable environment for the foreign capital to grow sustainably. Meaning that they 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 lacked like a legal uh, infrastructure yeah. or or like you know public system that could you know allow the stability and the predictability of of their capital to run. And I think it's important that they should be able to focus both on building the the suitable environment and at the same time try to like you know induce the foreign direct investment. But like I said, it's it's about economic resource allocation. If you have a limited amount of the resource and you have only like, you know one energy to focus on. And it's sometimes it's kind of um, easy to overlook the difficult part, which is you know building the um, the foundation, the investment environment. Yes. Now, when you say trade, which you've mentioned a few times, are you referring mainly to uh, an export focused? Yes. Um, uh, kind of like South Korea. I mean, South Korea's transition uh, through the seventies and eighties was mm-hmm. it was a much, very much an export focused economy, trying to attract foreign investment. And you're saying. 
this part, without mentioning South Korea, you're saying a somewhat similar path would be good for North Korea too. I didn't say that it would. No, you didn't say yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't. I never mentioned South Korea. No. But somehow, when we drew this conclusion, we kind of realized, well, it's kind of similar to South Korea. But that doesn't mean that North Korea has to follow the South Korea's path. Right. I'm just saying what we wanted to say through this research was that, um, you know, there are a lot of cases in mm -hmm. this world and uh, but not many like, you know, countries who went through the transition. Right. Right. And some of those like, you know, we investigated into those like, you know, some of the countries and then we were like, you know, we drew some you know similarities, like common common factors. Yep. So, yeah. yeah, you can refer to. So good relation with the U.S., mm -hmm. export focused. Mm hmm. Uh, attracting investment mm -hmm. and building, as you say, a uh, th the difficult part, building a, a stable uh, environment that uh, that helps to attract and keep investment there. Sure. Is there any anything else that we've missed there in terms of lessons uh, that we can draw from the CLMV countries? Ah, uh, CLMV countries. I, well, it's just like, you know, it's a shame that I've never been to those like CLMV right. countries. Right, you're, you're studying <laughs> it all from a distance. Exactly. So it would have been really nice if I just, you know, met those experts on site right. and then hear their, like, you know, hands-on experience. They witnessed the uh, transition from the 1980s or 1990s until now. And whether my, uh, you know, finding was kind of correct or not, uh, we were just, you know, making those CLMB countries as a testing bed, mm -hmm. whether we can also evaluate the transition, like, you know, process or maybe current status of the North Korean economic situation with those transition indicators. So, yeah, I think that was, that was a takeaway from those countries. I'm curious about whether you uh, shared this report or a summary of this report with the embassies of Vietnam and Myanmar I don't know if the other two have embassies in Korea. Oh, I have never thought about that. But we did invite those um, the the CLMB experts from mm -hmm. from within South Korea, and then we did a presentation uh, all oh. about this research outcomes. And they were like, "Oh my God, you're you're not fully grasping the uh, the the culture aspect uh. Uh, of those countries." And I was like. Yes, that was the um, the limit of this right. study. Like, you know, I've never met them. I've never been there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, I was just purely focusing on the economic factors. So, Because right, as, as economists, you're trying to quantify something. And so if that's numbers, you can't really deal with culture in that, that same way. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about the, uh, the, previous, uh, the, the previous Vietnamese ambassador to mm -hmm. South Korea, uh, Ambassador Vu, I think his name was. He had been uh, also a diplomat in Pyongyang. So he was uh, one of those rare diplomats who's been to both Koreas, uh, who speaks also uh, Korean. And I thought, wow, that would be really interesting to sort of let him have a look at it and see what Ooh. his comments are from that. So, but sadly, he's gone back to Vietnam now. Oh, but, no. Uh, but you could, you know, there's still, you could still get in touch with the embassy of Vietnam and say, hey, uh, can one of you guys send this to him and we'd love to get his feedback, you know, <laughs> if you're <laughs> That'd interested. That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here's a, a question that I always think of when we talk about North Korean transition and we compare it to other countries like Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, Cambodia, and Laos. I'm reminded of what Professor Andre Lankov of Kumun University has said many times over the years that I've known him, is that <laughs> the, the, very, the, the great difficulty and obstacle for North Korea uh, is the existence of South Korea. That South Korea, in its existence as a successful transitioned economy, mm -hmm. is a uh, is a threat to uh, to the continuation or the stability of North Korea. Because as soon as North Korea turns around its economy and says, "Oh, we're going to go in this other direction," some people within North Korea might say, "Well, that looks like very much what they're doing in South Korea. Why are we just becoming a poorer, later, slower version of our South Korean neighbors?" Let's 
have bigger change than just economic transition. And so that that's a very uh, a big threat there. So my question, I guess, to you is, can North Korea transition effectively and stably as long as there is this successful model right next door called South Korea? Well, I've never thought about that issue from that perspective. And I th- I'm pretty sure... That- well, I cannot be sure of anything mm-hmm. or of what North Korea thinks. But my guess is that uh, North Korea wouldn't really care about South Korea's success or not because it's a completely different state. And like, um, I, I'm not sure whether we can call South Korea a transitioned country, but the North Korea doesn't want its regime to change. Its political you know, structure is going to remain the same as usual. The only thing that's going to change is the econo- economy like China did. And, well, the existence of South Korea wouldn't be a really big, you know, great model for them because South Korea's, like, you know, political system has changed a lot since the independence. And, well, it's a completely different story for here. It's a, yeah, it's a different story. But I, I guess that the, the, uh, the issue here is that in uh, uh, North Korea or Kim Jong-un's legitimacy as a leader is built to some extent upon saying, well, I'm fulfilling the legacy of my father and my grandfather, and, and they laid down these teachings about what is a, a successful socialist economy, etc. But I'm now going to turn around and go in a different direction. We're going to transition. Is he therefore not undermining his own legitimacy? Is he therefore not opening himself up to internal criticism from within North Korea saying, wait, you're making us into a cheaper copy of South Korea? In that, why why do we stay separate? Why don't we just join South Korea and do what they're doing and be much faster? Well, that's that's pretty difficult to answer because, um, mm. well, even yeah, though there, yeah, there might be an internal criticism when they start to open their economy, but I guess it's it's gonna be in a very limited way, like like they do, they have always done, mm-hmm. like opening doors to certain countries like China, Russia, and other some, you know, African countries and so on, and as long as the um, the authorities remain the same. I guess, you know, it's those like, you know, the opposition ideas can be, you know, overlooked. Because we know that in history, I mean, when Kim Jong-il was alive, when he was the leader, uh, at least a couple of times he went to China and he went down to to Shenzhen Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, whoever was the leader then, Mm -hmm. I I can't remember if it was Hu Jintao or one of the other, but took him down to Shenzhen and said, look, this is what we've done. You can do that too. And Kim Jong-il kind of said, nah, not really interested in that so much. Um, and then Kim Jong-un, of course, famously walked around Singapore and, you know, mm-hmm. and, oh, this could be like Pyongyang. But we don't really see any signs that North Korea is interested in a systemic reform of its economy. It's interested in, in tinkering a little bit at the edges, but it doesn't seem to be interested in a systemic reform. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? What is it that's holding North Korea back from saying, oh, we could be like Vietnam, or we could be like China, or we could be like um, even Singapore, if they wanted to? What's holding them back? They don't want to be, maybe. Yes, in, and, and down, Deep down in their heart, all they want is like, you know, keep their regime and keep their... Um, the government as as it is now, and the economic how to say um, economic growth mm-hmm. or like you know um, switching from from North Korea right now to the future version of like Singapore or Shenzhen isn't really a top priority for them. It's it can be done only if their you know um, government is pro- safely protected and remain. Mm. Okay, uh, go, going back to your report here, um, did you find in your research that it's more efficient to try to change the whole system all at once or to sort of focus on 
liberalizing and privatizing certain areas first? Well, I, I didn't make any like, you know, comparison between which one is better and like, you know, making a transition at once or, you know, making a slow progress. Uh, it depends on the country situation. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of Eastern Europe, the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was like a quite sudden, like, you know, one time event, uh, which kind of uh, swept away the entire European continent. And all they wanted to do was to, you know, uh, absorb as many capitalistic uh, elements as, as possible. But in case of CLMV, they didn't really have the direct impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union. They right. did have a transition because, you know, time passed away and they, they needed they wanted to make a change. They realized the, uh, the need for the change. And, well, I cannot really compare whether which one is better or not. I'm just, you know, making a comparison. Yeah, there was a, like a one time um, big event, like, you know, collapse of the Soviet Union in Eastern European. That's why they had a like, you know, one time big mm -hmm. shock. And in terms of CLMV's transition, it's a whole different story because it's on the other side of the globe. And, um, you know, it's a different country and their, you know, um, biggest, like, you know, um, big, uh, their biggest, uh, you know, neighbor is China, not Russia. So it's a different story. But if you were to give any advice to North Korean economic planners, would you say, you know, change the whole thing at once or do little bits and then build it up over time? Yeah. Um, so, um, what I wanted to uh, give North Korea mm. advice from, from this research is to make sure that, you know, you go over the examples of the CLMV instead of Eastern Europe. Ah. Yes. Well, you don't want like a sudden big change in the system as a whole. You definitely want to make some changes and see the outcome of it and, and see whether other, you know, sectors can adopt those like, you know, outcomes or not. So, you know, take a look at what uh, happened to the uh, CLMB and take as much as you can from each of the country. You don't have to follow a single, um, mm -hmm. you know, country's example because, well, each country had its own history and it's each country had sure. its own merit. Um, so it's a whole different story. Just, you know, have a look and, you know, you choose your own path. How long do you think the transition of North Korea's economy would take if the government in Pyongyang were to announce it tomorrow? So based on our research, it... It's going to take at least like 25 years. 25 years. At okay. least at 20, least, right. yeah. Um, okay, so it, it, it sounds like in, in all of this um, advice that you're, you're giving North Korea options to transition its economy without having to have a, a government change or a regime change. Would that be correct? Well, no, no, no. Um, without systemic change in the re within the regime. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, because you, you mentioned earlier that, uh, I mean, the, the, the Kim family, the top people, the elites of North Korea, they're interested in maintaining the stability of their political system. Mm -hmm. And that this, the, here might be some ways, these uh, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam might, be, uh, might offer some ways of, of um, transitioning the economy without necessarily having political change. Sorry, could you repeat that question? Yeah, it wasn't really a question, was it? Um, <laughs> So it, it seems like this report is suggesting to North Korea that by looking at the four examples of Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam, that here are some possible ways that North Korea could uh, transition its economy without changing its political system. Yeah. Is, that, is that an accurate summary? Well, um, a slight um, clarification yeah. uh, is that it's not really for North Korea. This research was not you know, built and designed for North Korea. Oh. They can take some of the lessons out of it, mm -hmm. but it was built and designed for our government, for the South Korean government. So, you know, if the North Korea takes the transition path, 
and learn some of the lessons from those four countries. Yep. And they might take some lessons and they might, you know, uh, follow their path. What are we going to do? So what, what can South Korea do uh, or what, what should we do to, you know, prepare for like what transition or changes in North Korean economy? What are we going to do? That's the key takeaway from the research. Okay. So in the ideal world, is this report that you put together, you and your colleagues, 160 pages, is this something that economic planners in North Korea should read and get some ideas from? Or is it something that you think would only make them uh, worried and perhaps go in the opposite direction? Oh, that's that's hard to say. Um, I've never met anyone from the north. So. No, no. And and unfortunately, by the time you prepared the report, uh, relation, relations between North and South Korea had already gone quite sour. Exactly. Uh, in the ideal world, is it something that you would like to send to North Korea and say, here, hey, have a look at this, guys. Here's some ideas. Well, uh, based on the um, the recent letters that were you know open to the public mm-hmm. uh, between uh, the former President Trump and the uh, the president Kim, I don't know. Uh, I don't think you know nor- the North Korea would be interested in like you know taking any advice from from the South. I'm just you know gonna show the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, if they want it, you can just take it. You know? right. I'll just leave it on the table. Leave it on know? the table. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can just take it. I yeah. mean, I don't want to like, you know, force like our ideas to to the counterpart. Sure. I I just want to you know let them know that here's a thing. If you're interested in, you can take it or not. It's up to you. Did uh, doing this research project and writing this report give you any hope? Hope. I mean, do you, do you feel hopeful about transition uh, in North Korea having done this research? I'm a researcher. I had to be, you know, very objective throughout the uh, the assessment. So I didn't have any like emotional um, um, attachment to the report while I was writing it. Okay, but afterwards, you know, you cl- <laughs> you, you, you finish the last page, you, you save the PDF, you close the file, <laughs> and you get ready for a little vacation, and you think, okay, you know, what, did you have any feeling at all? At the time, yes, I did. Now it's like I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's an honest answer. Uh, now, I want to talk briefly about a, a totally different topic, but it's a bit more nerdy, and so I thought I'll just give it a couple of minutes at the end because some people might have switched off by now. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but it's something that I think is quite interesting. Uh, I saw in, in your list of, of research um, papers, you, you did some research on applying machine learning tools for analysis of text documents from North Korea. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, so um, it's it's a recent uh, project that l- that was launched uh, back in May of 2022. So it's it's not published yet, so mm. I cannot really share the details or the outcomes of the research. Okay. But what I did was, um, well, I did aim the uh, the open source of the text documents that were produced in North Korea. It's a huge amount of it, like mm. during the uh, Kim Jong Un's period. So it's like 2012 until 2022. Okay. And what is the volume? Oh, the can, volume. Can you give an idea? The whole, like, newspaper of Rodong Shimun. Okay. Well, I mean, that's only four pages a day. That's not that much, is it? Well, if you think about the text document and if you want to, you know, get into the analysis yeah. by applying the machine learning tools, it's all about the words. Right. So there okay. are so many words within one document because, oh, sorry, one document. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of document. And, well, it's the first time I learned it how to do the text mining tools right. through a Python. I, I know how uh, to use a Python. It's, it's a software. What is, what is that? Oh, that's a software. Okay. Yeah, it's a software okay. to you know do the uh, statistics and ah. yeah build a report, build an Excel sheet or uh, the text file and so on. 
but I've done a lot of things uh, on the statistical methods, but I've never done this like text analysis. Right. So, so I'm, I'm familiar with this, um, you know, uh, shows you how basic my knowledge is, but I'm familiar with this, this thing called optical character recognition, right? So you have a, you have a, a scanned newspaper or a book, yep. and then it can turn that picture into words. And then you can copy and paste, or you can do word searches. And so I'm, ta- so I'm guessing that's the basis for all of this. And then on top of that, you have this Python thing that can go in and do statistical analysis of how many times a word pops up or things precisely, like that. Right. Precisely, yeah. And uh, the thing is, the North Korean language is quite different from the South Korean language. I mean, even though we... Spelling's different. Spelling is different. And they mm. have a, um, what is it called? Like a making of spaces. Making ah. spaces. Oh, so there are rules on, on where you put a space, exactly. where you break up words. Precisely. Um, is different. Is different. Okay. And besides, um, I'm not sure whether they develop their own like you know language package, mm. but we do have a South Korean language package that we can apply to on Python. Well, you're not talking about Hangul Hansoft, are you? No, no, no. I'm not okay. talking about a Hangul Hansoft, okay. but something language uh, language tools that we can apply on Python. So there is a Corn L Pi. It's like a hangar. Okay. Uh, uh, so it's like a breaking down the hangar into like, you know, a very minimalistic word, ah. like a token. Right. Yeah. And we have one for South Korean language. Okay. But we don't have one for the North oh, Korean so one. So you've got to build one from scratch. Exactly. Okay. And sometimes it's difficult. So we applied, I, I applied the South Korean one first mm. on the North Korean text. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. No. So I had to do it manually. Ah. <laughs> yeah, manual job to wow. identify those words. Um, but you're an economist. I know, I'm an economist. <laughs> this, I this doesn't seem like the normal sort of thing an economist would do. Exactly. Um, so what an economist would do out yeah. of this is to find out what kind of economic policies the ah. North Korea is like, you know, planning or has right. achieved, okay. or like, you know, the trend of their like industrial policy throughout the like in a period of Kim Jong Un and so on. So that's what I'm trying to do, but it's uh, technicalities are killing me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Partly because of those language differences that you mentioned, right? Yes. Partly yeah. because. Because yeah. it looks really similar, mm-hmm. but it, actually you can't use the same tools that you use in South Korea. No. Now, uh, as a, a comparative case, I know in, in East Germany, when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, the uh, outgoing East German government shredded a, a lot of documents uh, or hand-torn a lot of documents because the shredders broke down and there wasn't time to destroy everything properly or burn everything. And then afterwards, in the United Germany, they had a, this, this room where a, a, a group of women put many of these documents together by hand. They, they called them the puzzle women. And so they had these sacks sacks of shredded and torn documents and they're sitting there all day bent over a desk putting little strips of paper together on on sticky tape uh to to piece together the documents again like the stasi files for example Uh, and and now of course in recent decades they began to use some form of uh, artificial intelligence to help to digitize and piece together the torn documents you know using um machine learning rather than doing it by hand and is this something that uh, that Kiev is getting ready for, like after some kind of transformative event in North Korea to <laughs> to put together the giant North Korean archives and and you know st- strip mine them for for information? Uh, imaginary world, yeah, it might be. Like you know, it's all a valuable asset, and yeah. you know, it's a valuable information with it. And so th- that's why there were like a lot of women, like you know, putting all those like pieces together and you know uh, restore those data because it's it's a valuable one. Right. Yeah, right. has value in it. Okay, well, it sounds fascinating. What will be your next research project uh, related to North Korea? Ah, <sighs> that's a good question. Um, well, I, I just hope that you know uh, 
the ones that I'm doing at the moment um, are going to end very soon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what would you do if, if there was no more North Korea to research? What would you do? <sighs> I would take a month for a break. <laughs> well, yeah, but eventually you got to come back to work again. Exactly. Uh, what do I want to do? I haven't really thought, put a thought about it. Okay, well, we hope that you'll continue to study North Korea for many years and, and share... <laughs> Share your research uh, results with the world. We hope to have you uh, on the uh, NK News podcast again next year to talk about more of your research. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Han and Han. Thank you for having me again. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services that specifically cater to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today or tomorrow. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks again, and listen next time. Mm -hmm.